You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. As the church from that. Uh, so once again, we'll be in Exodus chapter 24. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we do have some pew Bibles in front of you. You can grab one of those. We'll be on page 60 in most of them. There are a few old ones where you might be around 55. I'm not sure, but uh, you can grab one of those to follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, So now that you've sat down, if you're able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read together. So Exodus chapter 24, starting verse 1, Providence, hear the words of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to thank you guys for being here, Uh, especially if it's your first time. I just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Uh, And like Eric said, we've been working through the book of Exodus uh, this year. And last week, we kind of uh, took took a larger portion of Scripture. We took a few chapters and kind of preached through the civil law of Israel. And this morning, what we're getting into is really kind of the last chapter before Moses is going to what the Bible says, enter into the cloud, and then God is going to give him the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. It's a really interesting part of Scripture. It's, it's, uh, it's one that's often missed because there's details about how God wanted to build the tabernacle, which a lot of Christians uh, often will think uh, just irrelevant to us. But we're going to get into it in the coming weeks, and I'm hoping that it's going to be helpful. But this is kind of that last chapter before that happens. Uh, and it's a little bit of an interlude because if you remember, God's given the law now, um, he's given the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He's given the, the judicial or the civil law. Uh, and, and now there's this little chapter, what happens in the in-between. And so in this chapter, what we see is that God confirms the covenant with Moses. And then there's really a wonderful moment where it says that they see God, they, they behold God uh, in, on this mountain, on, on Sinai. And not just, Aaron, but also, or not just Moses, but also Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders. So there's really one focus that I have this morning because we're going to have a few uh, sermons through this, this one chapter. Um, but this morning what I want to focus on is now that we've talked about the law for a few weeks, I want to talk about Christian obedience. And in particular, um, if you're anything like me, and this one makes me tremble more than anything, and the reason for that is because I know how disobedient I can be. Uh, I, I know how, how, how little I can listen. I've been... Uh, this way since I was uh, a young boy, and only, grow, only growing up has made it more uh, clear to me just how disobedient I can be. 
But I think it's important that we note how is it that we can grow in our obedience to the Lord if that's the calling. And, and what I hope that you've caught over the course of the last couple of weeks is that just because we have the mercy and grace of Christ on the cross doesn't mean that that negates our call to be obedient to the Lord and to seek that obedience out. Now, there's a recognition that we should have that we're sinful and in need of grace. And in some ways, the pursuit of holiness just makes that more clear. But nonetheless, we should be asking, how is it that we can fight against sin and fight for holiness? How can we fight against sin and fight towards obedience to God's word? And I want to talk about one tool, really. It's just one thing that I think is the central thing uh, that we see in this text that can help us. But before I jump into that, I want to pray for us. I want to ask the Spirit to speak to us through God's Word. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray. Father, we confess to you that apart from you, we can do nothing. That's what your Word says. Jesus, those were your words. And so we ask now that you would, by the power of your Spirit, that you'd help us to to hear from your Word this morning, to be challenged by it but also to be comforted, to be encouraged. And even as you revealed your glory unto Moses, we pray now that as we read your word, that you would reveal your glory to us, and that in so doing, we would see you for who you are. Now it would shape us, it would mold us, God, change us. We look to you, God, because we know that apart from your word that we will stray. And so we just, we look to you now and we submit under your word and we thank you that your word's been preserved for us. And although, my God, I, I do not know every unique situation in the room, I know that you do. And so I trust you that you will speak clearly and, and that, my God, you intend to do us good because your word has said such. And so we trust you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's read these first four verses in chapter number 24. So if you remember, what's happened is Moses has received the law of God, and now he's come out of the cloud. If you guys remember, the children of Israel, they would not draw near when when God first started to speak, but Moses was the only one to draw near. We've talked some about this, but you're going to see a little bit more of it. It's it's Moses typifying Christ in that the people can't draw near to God. They need a mediator, and Moses is the only one that can go in. Christ is the only one that can come into the presence of God, and he makes a way for us to be able to come in through his broken body. And that's what we're seeing here in the Exodus story. And so Moses has gone into the cloud. He's been, he's given, he's been given the moral law. He's been given the civil law. And he comes back out here in 24, and this is what God tells Moses. So let's start in verse 1. And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord all and all the rules, or the laws. And all the people answered with one voice, and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down, all the words of the Lord. So what we see here is the nature of the covenant of God. The point of it is to, to, point Israel, to point Israel to the nations that they might be a beacon and a light. We start with Abraham and God tells Abraham, you will be a great nation. 
and, and I will make you as the stars of the sky or as the sand of the seashore. But here now we have the law given. There's this new unique piece to the Mosaic covenant, namely that God says this is how you're going to live and this is why your life's going to look different because all the other nations are going to live on the basis of their own wisdom, but you are going to live on the basis of mine. And in so doing, all the nations will know that I am the Lord. Now, what I, want, what I want to really focus in on here is it says that Moses tells all the law to all of Israel, and they with one voice say, we will do it. That's really important. There was no dissent. It says with one unified voice, they all agree to this covenant and say, we will do all the things the Lord has said. And then there's a really key line, which I think is cool for us. It says, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So if you're ever wondering why it is that we're reading this, it's because Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And thanks be to God that he did. But I think there's something to be said about this, both of Israel and of the Christian church, which is we are people of the book. The covenant of God is written down because we are people of God's word. That's essential to understand. Apart from the Torah, apart from the law, apart from the covenant written down by Moses, the Jewish people don't have a covenant that they can look back on. And apart from the Bible, apart from the word of God, you and I don't have a faith that we can now say we're contending for. It's because God, by the power of the Spirit, inspired the writers of Scripture that we have what we have. So the idea is really simple. God speaks and Israel obeys, and that's the heart of the covenant. All that God has said, we will do. Now, we've talked a lot about authority over the course of the book of Exodus, and it makes sense, right? If you read just cursorily through the book of Exodus, God's kind of flexing his muscles a little bit. You get the plagues, um, which I would say is pretty intense. One of the more intense parts of the Bible, can we agree? You know? Um, you, this is why oftentimes people will see a difference. They look in the New Testament and Jesus is doing things like healing people and, you know, feeding 5,000 and that's, that's awesome. But then God does things like, you know, smother people with frogs and gnats in the Old Testament. And you're like, well, there doesn't seem to be a congruence. But you can't read the book of Exodus and not see that God's exerting his power and authority over all the nations. And that he's doing so, quote, so that they will know that I am the Lord. That's, what, that's the reason that God says he's doing it. You know, it's a mega theme. I am who I am, Moses. He asks, what's your name? And he says, well, I am that I am. Or all the other gods are false. This is God really kind of showing Moses and all of Israel, all the other gods are not just uh, inferior rival gods. They're as nothing to me. It's, this is a kind of a powerful show of his strength. And he wants the world to know it. But what I want to focus on is there's an aspect of obedience that is deeply rooted in this story, but it's often missed because of the heavy focus, and I want to say a rightfully so heavy focus on the power of God exerted in the plagues. We miss something, and I want to focus a little bit on it. Most people are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but they don't are not as familiar about one of his earlier books that he wrote called The Silmarillion. And The Silmarillion is kind of the uh, it would be like the Genesis, okay, story account of Middle Earth for J.R.R. Tolkien, okay? He speaks a little bit about how it all started. And I'm not going to read to you some of the quotes because, well, you'd think I'm a nerd and then you would just confirm to me what I already know. But nonetheless, there's a specific part that uh, in the very beginning of the Silmarillion that I think is really good, it depicts um, the, the creation or the heavenlies even before... Middle Earth be created, and it's, it's the angelic bodies in a song. And so you have God that's depicted with a different name and his angelic host, and they have a, a beautiful song that they're singing. 
and a third of the choir begins to sing a different song. And basically, this is just a short quote. It's not going to be up behind me, but it says, um, the first song was deep and wide and beautiful, slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. But then it talks about the other song, the one that the third of the angels sang. The other song had achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and it was vain and it was endlessly repeated and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. Now this is Tolkien's vision of in the beginning, how Satan rebelled and fell. And I think it's a wonderful vision. It's a wonderful depiction. It's a wonderful illustration because it gives us music as an analogy to the way in which God created the earth. And the reason I think that's well put is that at times we think that being obedient to God is only singularly about God's authority. We ought to obey him because he's in authority. And this is, of course, true. This is basic, fundamental. But it's not all that there is to the obedience. Tolkien was getting into something that was maybe a layer deeper or a layer to the side, depending upon how you look at it, which is that obedience to God leads to life. Obedience to God leads to being in harmony with that which he has created. Obedience to God leads us into something that's beautiful, objectively so. It leads us into joy. It leads us into pleasure. It leads us into all goodness because he is all goodness. And so when we read through the scriptures and we say, well, well, how do we want to teach our children to be obedient? Why do they need to be obedient to God? Well, they ought to do it. Well, that's true, but it's not the fullness of the truth. We have to take it a step further and say, also because it leads them to good. It leads them to joy. It leads them to that which God had created them to be. And this is really fundamental about understanding not just the Old Testament, but the New. You and I are created beings. We have a creator and he has made us. And therefore... Because we are created beings, we are contingent beings. What do I mean by that? We rely upon God for our very existence. Paul said it like this, in him we live and move and have our being. In God we live, move, and have our being. We don't breathe apart from him. We've never laughed apart from him. We've never cried apart from him. See, sometimes we think that it's, you know, we know certain things we're contingent on. Like right now, if you didn't eat, your stomach's probably grumbling. You know you have to eat at some point. You may be a little thirsty, too much coffee, not enough water. There's certain things you know you're contingent on. But in our soul, in our spirit, what we forget is that we are contingent upon God first and foremost. And because our lives are contingent upon God, there's really only two routes that we can go. Either our lives align with how our creator has designed us in harmony and obedience to him and his word, or we will fall out of step with that through pride and chart our own path, which leads to what? Well, what's the opposite of life? Death. What's the opposite of being? Non-being. It's an unraveling of sorts. And this is what God's laying out in his law. It's why when you read and God says, I lay before you life and death, and he's also laying before them the law, we think that's harsh, but it's just fact. He's laying before them life and death because he is life, and he's saying, if you walk with me, there's life, and if you walk apart from me, there's death. Now, the difficulty that we have in seeing this reality in a fallen world is that oftentimes we experience 
that when we sin or when we're disobedient to God, there is a momentary pleasure with that. And so when someone says to you to walk in obedience with God, it's life and joy and peace. You say, well, that's not what it feels like. (laughs) And when someone says to you that lust or anger or malice is death, they say, well, when I cut that person off, it felt good. (laughs) It didn't feel like death. In fact, it felt pretty nice. When I got my husband back, you know, for all the things that he had done, and I've been just kind of jotting it down, it didn't feel too bad, right? And because we live in that world where simultaneously sin can feel momentarily good, and on the flip side, Jesus told us, in this world you'll have tribulation. That means obedience at the very beginning, and maybe for a, an extended period of time here on earth, can even feel tough, difficult. It can include suffering. And so because we're living in a world that actually is fallen and broken by sin, it's almost like we're swimming upstream and someone's telling you you're swimming downstream, and that seems counterintuitive. But we have to recognize that, of course, we're going to fall out of harmony with the world and the world system if you obey God. It's because the world's fallen. The question's not whether we're going to feel out of harmony with the world. It's are we going to be in harmony with God, and that's what God's word is given to us for. Now, There's an important note here, and it's something that I think if you're not careful, you'll miss in the Exodus story. God has exerted and flexed his power and his authority, but to what end? To what end has he used the thunder and the lightning, the smoke and the fire, the plagues and the judgment, the bread from heaven and the water from the rock? You know, God has really shown Pharaoh who's boss because he left his entire army at the bottom of the sea. But to what end? And I want you to, if you don't hear anything else, Remember this, God has used his power in the Exodus story to awaken us, to awaken Israel from their stupor so that they might know him and experience life. Another way to put that would be, do we really believe that God gives us his law so that he can hem us in from happiness? Do we really believe God exercises his authority over the nations so that he can then enslave the nations under his rule? Of course not. God exercises his authority to give us true liberty so that we might know him, so he can reveal himself to us. Now, this should shape everything about the way that you see God's word. Also, if you're a parent in the room, this should shape how you think, how do I raise my children to be obedient to God? We must not raise our children merely to see that they ought to obey God's word, but raise them to understand God's word so they might know God, so that in turn they might love God's law. They might love obedience. Do you see the difference? It's not merely I ought to do a thing. It's that I love to do a thing because I love the author of it. Let me put it in a more maybe human example. If you're a father, do you want your children to obey you begrudgingly even though they hate you and disagree with everything that you do? Or that they would know you and know your heart and so even if they don't understand you, they would obey you because they know you care about them and that you're, in, you're out for their good. Does this make sense? The law of God's given that we might know God. And in so doing, even if we don't understand, as Spurgeon told us, even when you cannot understand God's hand, you can trust God's heart. (laughs) So in your life, when you get to these places where, why is this happening, God? I don't understand it. If you know God's heart, then you can trust God and walk in obedience. Okay. Now, another misnomer about the Old Testament. So we see here that Israel says, we'll do everything that you say, God. We'll do everything that you say. And if you're a Christian in the room, you've had these moments in your life, haven't you? It's like, this is a mountaintop experience. You know, summer camp 97, you were like, God, I'll obey you forever. You know, and how long does that last? 
if you're honest with yourself, right? Well, I'll just tell you how long it lasts for me. I don't know, three hours. However long I was worshiping, that's how long it lasted for me. You know, it didn't take me long to be greedy, to be malicious, to be, you know, jealous that my buddy had brought snacks in the camp rooms and I forgot snacks. But Israel does it. I will obey you, God. And this is something that's often missed is that we think when we read the Old Testament, God is expecting perfect obedience here. Is he, though? Well, let's keep reading because I think the next verses would give us an indication if that's true or not. Let's start in verse 4 again. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and then he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And the altar had 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is very simple. This is the totality of Israel being included in the covenant, okay? And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it into basins, and half the blood, and he threw it against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and he said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's the second time they've said it. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. I think it would be very wrong to assume that God is expecting that Israel will be perfect and never break the law. And the reason for that is because God knows man better than man knows man. The scripture says in John chapter 2 that Jesus needed no one to testify to him about what was in man because he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't need anybody to tell him that Judas was a snake. He told everybody else Judas was a snake before Judas did snaky things. He knows us. He knows sinfulness. He knows the sinfulness of sin, as John Owen called it. How dark is sin? Only God knows how dark sin is. And in particular, only Jesus Christ knows the fullness of the depth of sin because he drank the cup of sin dry on the cross. So we can't expect that God would be so frivolous as to think, I'm going to believe them and take them at their word. They're going to really obey me now. They, you know, the whole Red Sea thing, it fixed them. If that were true, why did he need to have a civil law in the first place? Because the civil law's point is there to tell the children of Israel how they should act when people break the law. See, we often think that the Old Testament, it's just it's sheer obedience, and that's the only thing, and there's nothing else. But we're missing a major piece of the Old Testament, namely the sacrificial system. Why would there need to be a sacrificial system if God thought the children of Israel were going to nail it? That he knew they would not. This is why the children of Israel, just like the Christian, are not merely people of the book, but they're people of the blood. That's true of us too. We're not merely Bible people, we're people of the blood. If you miss one or the other also as, as a Christian, you lean one way or the other, you typically are going to fall into error. If you feel like you're a person of the book, but you never talk about the blood, it's usually because you're self-righteous and you don't know your own sin. If you're a person of the blood, but you don't care about the book, it's usually because you're licentious and you just don't really care. Well, God forgives me. He's gracious, but he's never said anything to me about how I should know him. We're people of the book and the blood. Both God has spoken and we've broken it. And thank God that both things are true in Christ. We've been saved. Now, God knew that man was sinful, and then he provides for them a sacrificial system in order to deal with that sin. So what's happening here? There's blood on the altar and then blood on the people. This is a really intense moment, by the way. If you think that your Bible's boring, I want you to think about this. Moses just told 12 young men to make sacrifices. He gathered up all the blood from the oxen of these 12 young men. He put half into one basin and half into another. He threw half of that blood on the altar, and then he threw all that blood on the people. <laughs> imagine a church service like this. By the way. We're not going to be doing this anytime soon. Don't freak out. But imagine this. Just, just covered these people in blood. Well, what's going on? 
blood on the altar, blood on the people. Blood was to remind the children of Israel of the result of disobedience and sin, which is death. The cost, that there's a cost to the sin. This is something unique that oftentimes, especially in our new age of new spiritism that we don't want to talk about, that is, there, is there a cost to our behaviors? The Bible says absolutely, eternally so. There's bloodletting, there's bloodshedding. But there's a second piece, which is the blood is meant to remind them of the mercy of God because the blood that was on the altar is the same blood that they would put on the people, meaning that God would accept the sacrifice of another to cover them. You notice this in the book of Exodus, right, with the Passover? The blood is on the doorpost, and as long as the blood is on the doorpost, then the death angel can't come in. It's a covering saying that the lamb stood in your place. That's the idea. The oxen are standing in your place. Someone had to die, but the animal died and not you. It's a covering. It's a blood shedding moment. Very, very briefly, just as Israel was a, were a people of the blood, you and I are a people of God's word and a people of Christ's blood. The only thing that stood out with Israel and made a distinction between them and the Egyptians during the plagues was the blood. It wasn't, and I don't mean their ethnic blood, okay? It was the lamb's blood. It's the only thing. The death angel was coming in, and the death angel was to destroy every single household, the firstborn son, unless the blood was there. Now, that's important for us to be mindful of. Do you know what makes us different and unique in the earth? It's not our obedience, because if you're honest and I'm honest, we're not killing it on that front right? It's not that we're better looking, more fit, wiser. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and I laugh when I read this. He says, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were smart. (laughs) It's just like he's ruthless. He's like, not many of you guys would have been, you know, first round picks, let's say. But he says, but you're in Christ. See, Paul understood it's the blood that makes the church unique, And when we shy away from the message of the blood, which I've heard pastors say this openly, hear me on this, that is charlatan behavior. That is evil behavior. If you shy away from the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us unique because it cleanses us from sin, you have shied away from the gospel. The blood is the center. That's why Moses says here, behold the blood of the covenant. What's at the center of the covenant of Israel? The blood of the lamb. What's at the center of the covenant with Christ? The blood of Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, we must not be ashamed of the blood because it is the thing that sets us apart, namely the blood of Christ. Okay, I want to I move now to Matthew 17 as we close. If you have your Bibles, turn me to Matthew 17. And then we'll get to... What's the one tool that will help us in our walk of obedience? I'm going to read Matthew 17. This is a very familiar story, but I want to tell you there's a one-to-one correlation. This is another one of those I always tell you guys. Uh, there's sometimes that just like the book of Exodus and the Gospels, you could just draw a straight line and say, hey, this is what's going on here. This is one of those, okay? What happens in Exodus 24 and what happened in Matthew 17? They're inextricably linked. And I'll show you why as we read through it. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. I hope you're catching this. If Jesus is the greater Moses, Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John. God tells Moses, I want you to take Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. So there's four guys going up. One's the leader and then the other three. Does this make sense? 
and they're going to go up. And he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And then he was transfigured before them. And next week we're going to talk a little bit about this. God actually reveals himself to Moses and Aaron and Nadab, Nadab and Abihu. And Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. He's, a, he's revealing his glory to them. And behold, check this out, who shows up? There appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make you three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Other translations, obey him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes up, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay. I want to show you some of the correlations and then maybe try to get to the heart of this. So you have the Moses and the Jesus correlation going up onto the mountain, the Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Peter, James, and John. You got 12 pillars for the 12 tribes at the bottom of the mountain. And what we know is that there's 12 disciples that are showing up at the bottom of the mountain, right? You have the seven elders of Israel. And if you remember in the book of Luke, and it even is only one, in the book of Luke, this uh, transfiguration is also accounted for. And only a chapter later, Jesus sends out the what? The 70 right after this, to go out. God meets with Moses on the mountain. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu see him. Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and met by Elijah and Moses. Now, why why are Moses and Elijah so important here? Okay, if Christ is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant and the birthing of the new, and the people of Israel had committed themselves, we will obey all that you've commanded, and that we know the children of Israel are people of the book, Christ shows up on the mountain, and you have what represents the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, the book, and they show up with, with Jesus, and he's discussing with them. And what is he discussing? Well, later in the book of Luke, it says he's discussing his departure. Now, we know because we understand cross burial, resurrection. Do you know what the word departure means in the Greek? The exodus. He's discussing his exodus with them. That's what's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then, of course, in this moment where where the law and the prophets are represented and Jesus transfigured before their eyes, then the Father speaks now because, okay, I'll, I'll be honest. I have misinterpreted many times what happens here with Peter because Peter's a very funny character and I think that I, I can see how I would be like this. I just thought he was being stupid. I genuinely just thought he was kind of, because you know how Peter sometimes will say things like, Lord, far be it from you to die. And it's like, we're arguing with God. You just said he was God. And like 12 verses later, you're arguing with him. And I'm like, come on, Peter, you know, he's kind of quick to speak, let's say. That's not what's going on here. Peter knows full well this is about the Exodus. He knows full well what's going on here. And he's seeing it, and he says, it's good that we're here. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's build three tents for each of you, because that's what God told Moses to do, was to build a tent for him right after this chapter, in chapter 25. Peter's just trying to be obedient. He just wants to, hey, let's make a house for you so you guys will stick around. Let's make a house so you guys can be here. And then from heaven, God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, 
His fulfillment of the law and the prophets is good. And then what? Listen to him. Be obedient to him. Now, this is really important. The Jews would have not been okay with being obedient to anyone but Moses' law. And God the Father speaks down and says, be obedient to him, my son, because he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, we're getting closer to the one tool for us for obedience. Jesus' covenant is greater than the covenant of Sinai. Jesus is the fulfillment. It's through his blood alone that, we're, that we are made whole, that we're forgiven. But I want to focus in on verse number 8. It's something that I've missed many times when I've read this, but I think it's wonderful. Listen to what happens here, Matthew chapter 17. And well, let's just do verse number 7 and 8. Let's start in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. So after they hear, this is my beloved son and him, well pleased, they're terrified. I want you to remember, what did, how did Israel respond to God's voice in the Exodus? Remember? Similarly, stuck their heads in the sand. Don't want to hear it. Tell Moses, you go talk to him. I don't want to talk to God. Listen to verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Verse 8, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That line is giving you a hint at what the new covenant's all about. They saw the law and the prophets. They were on this mountain. They had, you know, they were basically fulfilling everything that had happened before. And then whenever they opened their eyes, all they saw was Jesus. You see, the New Testament has a singular point of emphasis. Where the Old Testament has, includes the blood, it includes the book, it includes the ceremonies, it includes the sacrifice, it includes the priesthood, it includes the tabernacle. It includes the temple later on. It includes the temple system. It includes what the priest should wear, the vestments and the garments. And it includes, there's a lot of intricacies with the old covenant. Do you know what the new covenant's point of emphasis is? Jesus Christ. They open their eyes and all they see is Jesus. No longer Moses, Moses and Elijah aren't there anymore. Because the law and the prophets have been superseded and absorbed in the person of Christ. He is the fulfillment of it all. So this is why we can confidently say as Christians when someone says something to you like, well, what don't, you know, I don't understand how am I supposed to be made right with God? And sometimes we're a little ashamed. We're like, well, I don't have anything to tell you but to believe in Jesus. People are like, that can't be it. Well, now you understand why that can be it. It's because he is the fulfillment of all the intricacies. It's not to say that God is not intricate, that God's not complex. God not, God, there's not a lot that has to be done in order for you and I to be made right again. There's a ton, but it's all been fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so what does it mean for us? What's the path to obedience? Well, hear me on this, and I hope that this makes the case. The way that you and I grow in obedience is by by faith, learning to love Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said the greatest of all the commandments is this, that you'd love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now you might be saying, well, I do love Jesus. No, what I'm saying is that we are growing in our understanding of who Jesus is so that the depth of our love gets deeper, and it's from that love that obedience flows. See, I don't know about you, but C.S. Lewis has this wonderful line. He says that, you know, the man who thinks it not difficult to be holy ought just to try. <laughs> you don't know how difficult it is to 
walk in obedience to God until you try. You don't know how difficult it is to be righteous till you try. You know, we've all got our uniqueness in the way in which we sin because we're just, we're, we have a master's degree in sin. We've been studying for a long time. And so we're good at it, but we've become okay with these areas of our lives. Let me tell you something. The thing that you know that kind of eats at you, if you've ever tried to be obedient to God and, and reject it, you know how difficult that that is. And there's a famous preacher from the Puritan era named Thomas Chalmers who said, the only way to expel an old affection or to get an old affection for sin out is to expel it with a better affection, a greater affection, a greater love. He said, the only way to get sin out is to love Christ more. The only way to get sin out is to love Jesus more. The only way to fight against your disobedience is not to fight hard for obedience, but to fight hard for love, which leads to obedience. When my wife and I were dating, uh, and we were high school sweethearts, but when my wife and I were dating, um, I just noticed I started to do weird things. If you're married, then you know this too, and maybe guys, you'd never confess this, but you do weird things like listen to weird music, like like kind of soft music, you know, whatever. It's, uh, it hasn't happened ever again, but nonetheless, it happened then. Also, the, no one, uh, I realized that there was no one who had to tell me that Valentine's Day was coming up at those days. You know, you get a little bit older and you start kind of getting bogged down, right? And then somebody reminds you, like, oh my gosh, and you find yourself at CVS trying to buy flowers at like, you know, two in the morning for Valentine's Day the next day. You know, that never happened to me when Morgan and I were in high school and I was falling in love with her, right? Just, I mean, I knew it weeks in advance. I'd plan stuff, scavenger hunt stuff. It was weird, I wrote notes. I don't write notes, but I wrote notes then. No one had to tell me, hey, you know, I didn't have to look at a, a blog. Well, they didn't really, it wasn't really blogs then, but I didn't pick up a book that said, like, how to want to go on a date with your girlfriend. How to really stir up the desire. The desire was stirred, baby, okay? It was there. I wanted to go on a date with her. I wanted to spend time with her. I was excited about it. There's no explanation for that apart from that which God's put in us, which is the desire that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave only to his wife, and love is the thing that pushes that. It drives that. So what's the singular tool that will cause us to walk in obedience? Well, more than learning the law more for the sake of getting every jot, every, every T crossed and every I dotted so you can put it on your fridge and just buckle down with your virtue and discipline, it's love that will do it. And 1 John tells us, well, how do you learn to love Jesus more? Well, here's how. You love because he first loved you. Oh, so how do you fall more in love with Jesus? You get to know him more, and you get to know how much he loved you. So this is my exercise for us this morning. And this may sound a little bit masochistic. I promise you it's not. It's look to the cross. That's how we learn to love Jesus more. You look to the cross, and what you see at the cross is how much God has loved you first the depths to which he's willing to go to bring you back to himself. The beauty of God, that he would be willing to descend from heaven, live amongst sinners like you and me, and then give of his life. And as he was bleeding out, say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, every Easter I have this pattern of trying to watch the passion of the Christ again. And it's not because I have a Mel Gibson session. It's because the passion of the Christ gives you a picture 
even though it's seeing through a glass dimly. I don't think we could ever even imagine what's happening in the spiritual on the cross. But when I watch it, my heart, I, I'll tell you, the older I get, the more I cry. You think it goes the opposite direction, you know? Like a baby's crying, then you become tough. And I was crying yesterday about something. And I'll tell you, nothing, nothing moves me more than the cross because it shows me the love that Christ has for me. And so every week, and this is about to happen in a moment here, we'll do communion and we'll say something like, hey, if you're not in Christ, if you don't trust Christ, you know, we want you to refrain from taking communion. And then we'll use this line, we want you to consider Jesus. Well, why do we do that? Why, why consider Jesus? Because we're convinced that as the gospel's preached, if we can see Jesus as he truly is, that we cannot help but be changed by him. If we can see him as he really is. And so my, when I implore a non-believer to consider Jesus, I'm doing that very thing which I implore believers to do, to grow in obedience to Jesus, which is what? Consider him. Think about him. Why do you think Paul said something like this? Set your mind on the things that are above. Well, who is above? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's who you're thinking about. Because the more you get to know the God that you serve, the more you'll fall in love with him. And I don't mean that in some prom song to Jesus way. I mean love him in the way that the commands call us to love him. And in so doing, walking in obedience becomes a lot more like what I described to you in my dating life. (laughs) Where nobody has to tell you or prompt you to read your Bible because you want to. Nobody has to prompt you to pursue God because you desire to. And so this morning, my prayer is that our prayer would be in unison. God, help us to know your love so that we might love you more deeply. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that there are various circumstances in the room that would draw our hearts away from the living God. Holy Spirit, we ask now, would you draw, us, draw our hearts back to you? Help us as we consider and as we take of your supper, as we take of the bread which represents your body, the, the juice which represents your blood. Help us to remember the new covenant that has been instated in your blood and help us to see the cross so that we might know your love. And in so doing, that we might desire to be obedient that we might pursue obedience, although imperfectly, with our whole heart. But God, we just want to thank you with one resounding voice that it is not on the basis of our obedience or our righteousness that we're saved, but it's on the basis of Christ's. And Jesus, we thank you that we can leave out of here knowing that we do not sit under the heavy hand of judgment but that you are pleased in us because we're in Christ Jesus, your son. We pray these things in his precious name.